welcome to The Math of You, a podcast about formative media from when we were young. I'm Lucas Brown. On this, our 36th episode, I'll be talking to Bilal Shelby about awesome women in their life being a gateway to nerd culture. Along the way, we'll discuss how science-centered museums are the best museums, we briefly revisit the neogenic nightmares of the Spider-Man animated series, and we discuss the very, very best Superman. We'll finish the show with our signature cocktail and let you know how you can become a guest on the map of you. Editor's note. I recorded this conversation through Skype, and for some reason when I was talking to Bilal, I could hear them just fine, but when I revisited their recording, everything came out crackly and robotic, so to make the episode as listenable as possible, I had to make a few sharper cuts than I would have liked to. Additionally, my audio came out really quiet, so if you have to strain to hear me, sorry about that. We join this conversation already in progress. You can thank my insecurities for keeping me around you, babe. I pack my bags but never leave, cause it's so hard to walk away. say who you are and what makes you a beautiful and unique snowflake oh gosh <laughs> um <laughs> i'm Balao. i'm from chicago i'm a weirdo who likes comics and movies and <laughs> i like i like to bake things and when aiden was on she referred to herself as a professional podcast guest. <laughs> and I guess that's I guess that's becoming my niche as well. I actually just got a new position. My friend has a, a media block. It's called a screen test and it's mostly through Facebook and I've I've been putting together some stuff to write for that. I guess I'm going to start doing like a bad gay Netflix movie. <laughs> it's a very specific niche. Yeah. <laughs> I mean that's I mean that's my brand basically. <laughs> if it's a Netflix movie and the uh, and the dialogue is bad and the actors are the director's friends, that's a movie <laughs> I've probably seen more than five times. So I'm going to start doing reviews for those movies and then like some comics that I like and movies that come out in actual theaters that are that might actually be worth watching. Yeah, the rare thing. Here's a terrible movie and hey, once in a while, here's a good movie just to spice it up. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> Few and far between. <laughs> And I know I've heard you on I've heard you on Intuit, but what other podcasts have you been on recently? Ah, uh, actually, this one is my second one. Ah, there you go. I have a few standing podcast guest situations with some friends when the situation calls for it. But yeah, totally. I mean, it's one of those things where see kids at home. What they don't tell you is once you get a podcast and then start guesting on podcasts, it it just like spirals out of control. Mm-hmm. You'll end up on lots of things, and people will end up calling you and being like, hey, I need a, a, you know, a third chair for this thing. You're good, right? I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'll do that. <laughs> the more you talk about what you like and what you do, the more people's ears perk up and they want you to talk on their podcast about something. It's just a spectrum and it's just more and more podcasts every so often. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like mitosis. They split and grow. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's start with the basics. But whereabouts did you grow up? I grew up in Chicago. I grew up on the south side in the uh, Morgan Park area. Chicago has been an interesting city over the past like 26 years. 
growing up here and watching it change and the city that it's become and like the city that it was as you know when i was a kid it's it's very it's similar in a lot of ways and it's different in a lot of ways it's different in ways that i don't and it's different in ways that i don't like but you know it's it's where you know it's where i'm from yeah i was talking to artley vasquez a couple of episodes ago about how brooklyn has changed and i imagine chicago's undergoing Mm -hmm. a similar kind of transition oh yeah it's interesting because chicago is it's a city that sort of like state sanctioned housing segregation was pretty much started in chicago like literal laws in chicago that make it okay to not let black people move into your neighborhood Jesus. like it started here it started here and other cities were basically like okay like let's do what chicago's doing Oh, that's the wrong kind of trend setting, Chicago. Come on. Yeah, exactly. So it's funny how, like, we are on sort of the tail end of gentrification, if you want to call it that. You see it happening in other places, and it's sort of slowly starting to happen on the South Side here, which is interesting because, like, the South Side has such a negative connotation with a lot of places. But now, you know, I've lived here my entire life, and I've seen more white people on the South Side in the past two years, just, like, riding the bus or, like, eating in restaurants or, like, moving into, like, places that I've ever seen in my entire life. I just want to ask them, like, are, are you lost? Are you okay? Do you need me to call someone? Are you lost? <laughs> Are you in the right place? Do you need do you need directions? <laughs> did did you follow Google Maps and it's taken you here? <laughs> did Google Maps take you to the wrong place? Because <laughs> I know there's a Chipotle here, but there's also a Chipotle in the next county. So I don't know. <laughs> yeah, Google Maps has screwed me over that way a few times where it's like, because there's, there's a couple of really long streets in Sydney. Like Oxford Street goes through like four suburbs. But the problem is the numbering on the streets restarts per suburb. Uh, if you go, all right, I want, you know, 512 Oxford Street, and you don't put Paddington instead of Darlinghurst, uh, it'll take you to the Paddington one, and you'll be standing there in front of, like, an empty shop front full of, like, burnt furniture. And you're looking around, and it's like, I'm pretty sure this is not where I wanted to go. And you put it in again, and it's like, oh, it's five kilometers that way. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. That's wonderful. The thing about, that you mentioned about the gentrification is that when I first got to Sydney, I lived in a suburb called Newtown, which is kind of known for being like where, you know, all the punks and the queer people and the oddballs hang out, which was fine when I landed. And it's slowly like changed over time to where now you see a lot of, you know, upscale boutiques there. And, you know, Mm -hmm. it's getting very fancy. And then you watch people move into Enmore, which is in the sort of south side of Newtown. And then that starts to get fancier. And it's like, oh, they get an artisanal bagel shop now. And I've always said that The way you can tell you're a local is if you can remember three layers of strata. And it's like you can say, all right, oh, where that bar is, that's where the convenience store used to be. And before that, it was a chicken shop. And before that, it was this terrible sandwich place that nobody went to. Oh, yeah. It's like you get that third layer. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I've recently revised that as I've gotten older, where I've started to say that, no, the real sign of being a local is where you can't remember what was the previous layer when you see something. You look at it and you go, oh, yeah. Oh, was that the store I never went to? Was that the hemp clothing store? Was that the Salvation Army <laughs> store? Uh, I don't remember anymore, but hey, look, I can get a sandwich here now. Yeah. <laughs> was that the Korean fusion place? Or was that the Zimbabwean restaurant that those white, that, that white couple owned? I can't remember. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's what it's like that's here. That's more accurate than you know. <laughs> 
<laughs> I think the sign here, I think a lot of people picked up on the sign. If your neighborhood is about to be gentrified, if there is more than two Starbucks <laughs> or if there's a Whole Foods, mm-hmm. those are the signs in Chicago right now. They've just put a Whole Foods in the Inglewood neighborhood and the Inglewood neighborhood has a reputation for being like, you know, incredibly violent and having a lot of gangs in it. And they just put a Whole Foods in and and that was sort of everybody's like red flag of just like, oh, this neighborhood's about to drastically change in the next three years. <laughs> Even me, way over here in Australia, I've heard of Inglewood. <laughs> so, yeah, I like to think of the, yeah. the reverse of the gentrification thing, which is where, you know, you mentioned you Starbucks or Whole Foods or all those places. I like to think, and I remember this from living in Ottawa, the capital of Canada, and the over the river is Hull, which is the French-Canadian side, which is where my dad's from. You can tell the tone of a neighborhood by how many auto shops and smash repairs there are per square block. You know, if you got three on a street, like that is not a good neighborhood. <laughs> so Chicago in the 90s was a very interesting place. At the same time, like the end of like the crack epidemic and this really huge economic boom with the uh, Clinton administration. So it was this very weird time where like you basically had like a lot of a lot of people who were like going to rehab and like getting out of rehabs and a lot of people who were like experiencing like some of the best like financial and career like upheavals they've ever experienced in their lives so you had you had both ends of the spectrum yeah you had both ends of the spectrum you know for the most part in the same families oh wow yeah and so it was really interesting it was really and a really interesting time to be a kid because you know if you were a part of your family that was you know your parents were experiencing you know a pretty good financial situation you had access to more things than you probably would you know you probably would have if you were born like five ten years before i think when i was a kid in chicago uh the children's museum i don't know when it was built but it was a place that we uh went on school trips like every year and it was like my favorite place to go and it was essentially like this huge place at navy pier and it had different rooms and each room was like a a very specific thing targeting some level of science or mathematics or biology or whatever. There's one room that was like the nature room and it had these screens and the screens like gave you information on different animals and bugs and everything. And the floor and the walls basically made it look like a rainforest. And then the background, they had like the sounds of like monkeys and in another room that was my favorite was the waterway and it was this room you walk in and there's this like row on this wall of raincoats different size raincoats so you pick a raincoat that fits fits you you put it on and you go around and then the other side there's the waterway and then the waterway it's just this huge like platform it's just water that goes from one end of it to the other and it's like in a big circle and it just goes around and then you, you get like a bunch of different like toys and apparatus to put inside of it so like there's one part that's on an incline and so you get like these things to put inside of the the waterway to make the water move around them move around them and they're in different shapes and everything and then they gave us like sailboats so we would always like like stagger them on different sides and put the sailboat in so the sailboat would sort of like zigzag in between them we put multiple of them up so it made a dam so the sailboat would just like hit where the dam is go over it sink to the bottom come back up go to the next dam and do the same thing it was really cool 
<laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm I'm looking at this now. I, I looked it up on their website. Yeah, it looks like like a lot of fun. It's so much fun. And like I took my niece there a couple of years ago and it's and it's the same. <laughs> like it, it hasn't changed. They added some new features way until I was an adult. One of them is like there's this huge jungle gym thing in the middle where the kids can like play on. They basically have like a room where you can play with like an erector set, but it's enough where like if you brought an entire classroom of seven year olds, they each have something to play with. Okay. And it's so cool. But like that was a big <laughs> going to the Children's Museum once a year from when I was in, from when I was like five years old until I, we got too old and they didn't take us anymore. <laughs> it was like a huge it was like a huge part of my, my childhood. Yeah, I mean, I can think of a couple of places like there was Science North in northern Ontario and there was Science World in Vancouver. And it was always those kind of places. There's actually a place called Questicon in Canberra where I remember someone telling me about it and I'm like, Oh, what is it? Is it like, you know, is, can can I go to it? And they're like, you have to go. You have to go. It's great. And yeah, it's that, it's that <laughs> same kind of thing. It's that interactive kind of learning environment. And that makes an impression on kids. I mean, that made an impression on me and clearly on you as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Chicago has so much really cool shit. Like, we've got so many museums. We've got the aquarium and we have a planetarium and they're all within like a few miles of each other. I'm trying to remember from my, my visual map of when I was there, but it was like, the Shedd Aquarium is right next to the Field Museum, right? Yeah, it's the Shedd Aquarium and the Field Museum and the Planetarium, and it's all in its like weird peninsula in the middle of the lake, and it sort of like juts out. It's really cool. <laughs> yeah, I really like the Field Museum. I may have had an emotional experience looking at Sue the T Rex. So. Oh yeah, Sue. Who, all, Sue is... who also has the best Twitter account? Just saying. <laughs> <laughs> she does. She really does. Sue is Sue is a hometown hero. Sue is up there with Michael Jordan. <laughs> There was, there was one recently where it was a bunch of people in those Velociraptor suits, the T-Rex suits, whatever mm -hmm. they are, and they're all standing in front of Sue, and Sue is like, yes, my good, strong children. Look at them. They are so big and strong. <laughs> <laughs> uh, made my morning. Oh, that's great. That's great. <laughs> so growing up in Chicago in the 90s in Morgan Park, what sort of kid were you? I was really quiet. I guess I was a smart kid. I think uh, my dad... He made like academics really a huge thing with me and my brother, particularly like reading and being able to like, although he never put it in these terms, but being able to like read media and take things for what they are and really get to the bottom of, of what people are really saying, take apart people's words from their actions. Most of like my early schooling was just me like reading a lot and learning a lot and and uh, being really into researching things and going to the libraries, and I wasn't a very friendly kid, and I wasn't a very uh, I wasn't a very popular child. <laughs> it's one of those things where you tell a kid they're smart, and you bring them around other adults, and they the adults love that this kid is smart, and they teach them how to like you basically learn how to perform for other adults, perform your intelligence for other adults, okay, yeah. and like. Other kids don't really like that. <laughs> so when you grow up, you learn that like, oh, I'm going to spell this word over and over again because everyone likes it. And then you go to school and no one likes that. <laughs> you know, it's like Hermione Granger, you know, Hermione Granger. I really identified with Hermione because she did this thing of sort of performing her intelligence without really knowing or caring that her peers really didn't care. You know what I mean? <laughs> 
And so that's that's basically the kid I was until I realized like nobody really wants me. <laughs> nobody really wants this. <laughs> you don't get friends. You don't get friends from from saying like, "Hey guys, do you know what I know? I know all of this. Did you know all of this?" <laughs> oh wow! And the thing is, yeah, what really struck me when when you said that the performative intelligence, because on the kid scale of things, you get the performative cool or you get the performative disaffected. Or the performative, yeah. you know, just just playing dumb, and this idea that so many people have to kind of submerge that part of their personality to just kind of fit in, and yeah, it's it's the uh, you know talking about spectrums again, it's the other side of the spectrum from that performative intelligence. It's you don't want to be seen to be re- reaching out or or doing something that will get attention. Yeah, yeah, it's a real shame. I guess for me, when I was a kid, it sort of went like performing intelligence to book performing being disaffected to like, I guess, performing, just being a class clown mm-hmm. <laughs> in that order. <laughs> and and like, I feel like because sort of the time I grew up in, Black people in particular, we were sort of experiencing this like, I guess, like new age, like the 90s were like, for Black people, significantly different than the 80s or the 70s. And it's, you know, we all, I think for the most part, like, especially our parents, like sort of felt like, okay, like now we've, now we've made it, like now it's different. You know, like in the 90s, you had situations like, you know, the Rodney King riots and like instances of like state violence against Black people. But I think for a lot of people, the idea was like, okay, like now from this point, our children are going to have it better than we are. You know, they have the potential to have a better future. You know, little did they know. So, like, when, when you know, you're a black kid and, like, your parents never really had the opportunity to go to college. You know, they never really had the opportunity to have the access to education that you had. My parents were really excited. You know, my mom is dyslexic. And, you know, she never really got sort of the attention that she would have, you know, needed as a kid. And my dad, he's always been focused on education and research and when him and my mom met he adopted my brother like he was always just like my kids are never going to need for any they're they're never going to need for anything they're going to have a great education we're going to supply them with everything they needed and so when it came to like me and sort of the this place where i was sort of with my parents and their history and like the history of like black people were at the time and then like chicago as a city i did a lot of like hey guys do you know that this thing is in this place and these people know what this is (laughs) when i was like four or five i knew how to spell onomatopoeia (laughs) it's a good word to spell so i spelled it all the time i spelled onomatopoeia all the time when i was a kid like without hesitation question is though can can you bust it out right now (laughs) Yep. O-N-O-M-A-T. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> Did I forget it? <laughs> oh, no. Have I accidentally blown up your spot? I'm sorry. <laughs> no, actually, that's actually, no, that's that's for the best. <laughs> okay. Sorry. <continue. laughs> that was, that's for the best. That was, that was in the past. <laughs> I'm glad that I don't know it anymore. <laughs> that's a sign of a person who doesn't, who doesn't exist anymore. And that's, and that's good. <laughs> See, I was asking because I always misspell onomatopoeia, and I also know that it is one of the few words that autocorrect will not help you with. Because unless you get it like dead on, uh, your iPhone is just like, nope, I got nothing. You end up having to do the thing where you Google it the way you think it's spelled, and you wait for Google to correct you. And instead, it comes back with a bunch <laughs> of people who are idiots like you who have misspelled it the same way. Yep. <laughs> 
no, like that was my entire childhood was was there's this point in in my childhood where I started to want to learn things because I I wanted to and not because I thought that learning those things was a way to make people like me, you know, like a way a way to get attention from people. That was the moment where like I learned things and I appreciated them more because it was for like my own benefit. It was for my own happiness. Going to the library and and reading history books for like hours because it was interesting. Sorry, I just went on like a personal. No, please, that's, <laughs> hey, that's what the show's all about. I mean, and and you talk about you know the power of of actual interest as opposed to rote learning, and it's something that I've seen over and over again, not just in myself but in other people, because I mean I know kids that could you know recite every combination of the Megazord, but wouldn't remember their phone number or, you know, what they did in math class that day. And where that became really obvious to me was when I got, I, I did two years before dropping out of university, and I, w- re- I was looking at my elective subjects, which was stuff I was actually interested in versus what I had to, and was like comparing my notes between the two and just seeing like, okay, if I'm actually interested, it's so much easier to retain even without notes. Whereas in my other subjects, I would write lots of stuff but have no memory of it because it was just, you know, tra- going completely through my head into my hand onto the page. And I wasn't retaining it because I didn't care. But I, like, yeah. I was picking random courses. Like, I did a modern religious movements one, which is about cults, which was fascinating. <laughs> and I was like, technically, wow. that was a, year, <laughs> it was a year above what I should have been doing. But it was like a little class of like, you know, 14 people. And we had a really engaged teacher. And it was just like, I learned so much in that class. Hmm. And it's like it had nothing to do with what ended up being the degree I didn't get. And it's like apart from occasionally she's coming up at parties, I'm just like, no, I just learned it because I wanted to learn it. And that's that really powerful drive that you mentioned. Oh, yeah, yeah. Something really interesting is my dad is an exterminator. And when I was a kid, he's been an exterminator for like decades. And when I was a kid, I didn't care because it was something that he knew and something that he was like was into. And like most people don't want to hear about bugs. (laughs) When I got a little older, I started to work with him and I started to read up on bugs and like how interesting bugs are and like weird shit that bugs do. And like it blew my mind and like, you know, I just started picking up like etymology books and I would just like go through them and like read up on like bed bugs and read up on like all the gross bugs that no one wants to, no one likes. <laughs> They're all so interesting. Like, like you don't want them in your house. I don't want, I, you know, I don't want any in my house, but like... <laughs> They're so they're so interesting and like their habits and their life cycles are so interesting to me now as an adult. I mean, they're interesting to me back when I was like a teenager, but like learning to appreciate the information because it's interesting and not because of the social gratification of learning things and telling people that, you know, things. (laughs) It's a very formative moment when you like learn about, you know, tarantula hawk wasp and (laughs) lays its eggs inside of a living spider and the spider walks around for a while and then oh, look, it's alive, and it eats you, but at first it drives you around <laughs> and, like, finds a good spot where it can mm-hmm. grow. And it's, like, I, I can remember being, like, eight years old and, like, sitting in front of a book at the library, like, with my eyes as big as saucers, being like, that's so gross and cool. I love it. It's so cool. It's so cool. Or, like, antlions. Like, I, I was fascinated with antlions, where, especially just the living, as adults, they're kind of boring. They're, like, little mothy, mosquito-looking things. 
but the idea of them digging traps and sitting at the bottom with an open mouth. And then I saw Return of the Jedi. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And I'm like, oh my God, the Sarlacc is a giant antlion. This is the best. (laughs) And I was the one like hitting my friends and going, that's based on a real thing. And it's like, shh, no one cares. Like, I care. This is important. (laughs) Oh, that's great. (laughs) I have to catch myself sometimes because I'll go to parties and like people will ask me what I do, and I'll say like, "Well, you know, I I run an extermination company with my dad," and they'll just be like, "Oh, really? What's that? What's that? Who are these people? <laughs> like, what's what's that like? What's it like to like <laughs> exterminate someone's house?" And I have to stop myself from like going on a tangent about bed bugs because <laughs> it's so they're so fascinating to me. And like people's, it's like the bugs and people's reaction to bugs are so fascinating to me. And like why people react to bugs because of some like learned behavior from when we were cavemen and like we had to protect our food and like we had to protect our bodies from infection. And like this is really gross, but like bugs that wanted to burrow into our skin and like live. (laughs) (laughs) And like people's reactions to bugs are like natural and like great survival methods. But, like, I don't know. It's so fascinating to me. It's kind of like when I remember there was a vacuum cleaner salesman that came to our house and, like, got in the door, which is first mistake, Mom. He was trying to say, like, oh, look, there are these dust mites that live in everything. And here's, like, a scanning electron microscope scan of the mites that live, like, in your skin and on your clothes and on your furniture. And here is a vacuum that will fix all that. And I remember, like, being a kid and being, like, really creeped out by this. Like, oh, there's tons of them I can't even see. And they're all over me. And it's so weird. And then I I think I had, like, a momentary kind of mental shake where I went, "Ah, I can't see them. I can't feel them. I'm good. I think I'm good. (laughs) Who cares? Whatever. (laughs) Now, initially when we were setting up the show, you had mentioned that you wanted to talk about your mother and your grandmother kind of being your doorways into the culture of the time. So do you want to speak a little bit to that? Oh, yeah, yeah. So uh, starting with my grandmother, my grandmother was a big DC Comics fan. That's great. When she was a kid. She was a big comics fan, I should say, just period. Because when she was a kid, I think she was a big Green Lantern fan. She was a big Wonder Woman fan. She read a lot of Western comics and a lot of war comics. And I want to say she read a lot of Justice League stuff when she was a little older. And so, like, my grandmother, my grandmother has been my gateway into, like, nerd stuff in general. Or or I should say science fiction, fantasy, horror stuff in general. I remember going to her house when I was a kid and she has this bookshelf in her living room. And it has a bunch of Stephen King novels and basically any, like, big horror science fiction fantasy writer after, like, 1972. Like she's had, she has a big book from one of them, like on this bookshelf. And I remember just like picking up a bunch of stuff and like flipping through it. And I remember uh, I picked up her copy of Stephen King's Carrie when I was about nine years old and just flipping through, <laughs> like just flipping through it and reading random pages and just like the description of like really horrible, like really horrible, like really scary body things. And then like really terrible, like high school stuff. And then like Carrie, like murdering people <laughs> and just being like, holy shit, this is awesome. Was it my grandma was my intro into Star Trek 
and Doctor Who. Because I think in the 60s, when both those shows premiered, my grandma was like, she was pregnant with one of my uncles. And then she would just like stay home and watch PBS all day. <laughs> and so she would watch Doctor Who and she would watch Star Trek and she became like a huge fan. So when uh, Star Trek The Next Generation came out, she would religiously watch every episode. <laughs> she would record them on VHS and like watch them later. My grandmother's sort of getting me into, basically my introduction into any type of like, like comics culture stuff was my grandmother getting really excited to watch the X-Men cartoon. Oh, wow. She was a big X-Men fan in the 60s, right before she stopped reading comics. I mean, right before she stopped reading comics, she was reading Fantastic Four and the X-Men. And then she stopped because she had, she had children. <laughs> she needed to like buy them food or whatever. <laughs> and so when the X-Men cartoon came out, she was really excited to watch it because like she was a huge, I think she was a huge fan of Beast. Like she was a huge fan of Beast. And I think when my uncles, when they were still reading comics, they were reading the X-Men and like they brought the X-Men home and my grandma would like flip through some stuff and she saw Storm and she was just like, who is this? <laughs> and she got really excited about Storm. And so we watched me, my grandma and my, my older sister, we watched, we watched the X-Men cartoon and my grandma was sort of like, this is weird, but I don't care, <laughs> you know, and, just, and because my grandma was such a huge influence for some of those things like it was it was never like these are my things you can't read them it was always just like i love star trek and i love doctor who let's watch these episodes together and i'll tell you what this means and i'll tell you why this is important i've never been a big star trek fan but i think because of my grandmother i have like a healthy respect for what the show means to a lot of people this idea of you know this future that this inevitable future where we don't have you know, prejudice and we don't have bigotry and, you know, we all come together as, as a human race and we you know, we want to go through the galaxy and we want to spread peace and, and joy in a way that isn't colonialist. <laughs> and that was, you know, really beautiful to my grandmother. And it's, it's a really great message, I think. And, you know, with Dr. Who, my grandmother was, she was always an educator with her kids. She was always sort of like, you know, we're going to go to the zoo and I'm going to tell you about all the animals. I'm going to like not sugarcoat life or I'm not going to sugarcoat anything about what you guys see on a daily basis, you know. And I think that's sort of why my grandmother's really connected with Doctor Who, because I think all her kids were, her older kids were sort of at the age where they could like really observe the world and take everything in as it is and my grandma can have like really you know adult conversation like not adult but like uh, she could have really mature conversations with her older kids she was such a huge influence on how i view science fiction and fantasy and also like you know she was the start of all these instances in my life where people gave me comics or they gave me something that i really love in my life and I try to do that with people and I try to do that with people in my life. Like, hey, I think you might like this book. Here, read it. It's really great. It's funny that you mentioned it, that one of your grandmother's favorite characters was Beast because you want to talk about performative intelligence. Yeah. <laughs> or even even the doctor. I mean, you can say, you know, the doctor's talking a mile a minute, being the smartest person in the room and being lauded for that. I think, yeah, I definitely think there's a connection there. That's true. That is true. <laughs> I've never thought about that. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah. It's something important, I think, that doesn't get talked up enough. The idea of having someone when you're young to kind of be... I'm trying to think of an analogy that does not involve selling things to kids, be it toys or candy or whatever. But 
it's this idea of having someone who is your initiator for these things. I mean, I had my Aunt Fran, who was known as my Aunt Cricket. She's my mom's youngest sister. And she gave me, like, my first ever fantasy book. And her and her eventual husband used to play D&D. And he used to let me read the trap books and, like, play with the miniatures and stuff. And Oh, wow. What is awful is that my parents were really suspect about it because they had seen lots of stuff on the news about how Dungeons and Dragons was bad for kids. And <laughs> and they're like, don't get too attached. And I'm like, meanwhile, secretly, I'm reading, like, guides on how to set up traps and things and thinking it's just the coolest that my aunt Fran was just the coolest person and the times i got to stay over at their place and just like pour over these books were, were the best wow yeah <laughs> oh man she was also the same one who got me the first four wheel of time books as a present in like at the beginning of ninth grade and oh wow like like I, I did this the other day where I was talking to Kimiko about it because I've been going through, in an effort to spend less money, I've been going through a lot of my shelves of stuff that I haven't read that I've had on my shelf that I bought or, you know, someone left out on a, a table on a street corner saying, hey, free to good home. And I've been reading them. Mm -hmm. And I found that I had a, a very beat up paperback copy of Dune, which I had never read. And I decided I was going to sit down and read it. And I realized I'd blown through the first hundred pages in like two days. And I'm like... You know, because I'm usually, I read a little bit before bed and I fall asleep really quickly. With this, I was just flying. And she's like, why are you so into this one? I'm like, well, first, it's good. And secondly, it's got the language of science fiction and fantasy, which I'm so used to. She's like, what do you mean? And so I run into the other room and I come back with a paperback copy of The Dragon Reborn by Robert Jordan, which does not have a front cover or a back cover. <laughs> it didn't, nor does it have the first few pages on either side that are, you know, just your publisher's notes or anything and it's swelled up to the point where it looks like it's been in a flood oh gosh <laughs> I'm just like, this was one of the books that i got in ninth grade and i have read it so much that my other versions i've had to replace them Be but this is the one of the ones that stayed and she's like how many pages is that i'm like i don't know like like a thousand and i and you know when, when you're a kid you just kind of fall upon this stuff and you, you yeah. fall through it in a way that kind of like I said, I've, I've internalized that type of language where I can just blow through a story like that. Whereas something else, like, you know, a nonfiction book or something, I might have to sit and pour over it because you don't want to miss anything. Where it's like this, I can just kind of absorb it through osmosis. Yeah, yeah. Oh, man. With my grandmother, we really bond over science fiction stuff. Like, my grandma lives with my mom, so I'll call my mom. And I'll say, hey, has, has Granny seen this show? And then my mom will ask her, and then... My grandma will go on a whole tangent of our feelings. My mom will just hand her the my mom will just hand her the phone and we'll just talk. We'll just talk about it for hours. But yeah, my grandmother was the first person to really just hand me like hand me something and say like, well, I won't say she's the first person. She's the first person to hand me something particularly like nerdy or from nerd culture and say like, I think you might like this. And I had a lot of other instances in my life that were really life affirming. I think when I was like seven or eight, one of my friends and I, we were watching the 90s Spider-Man cartoon. And it's like, it's good. It's fine. It's okay. <laughs> it's okay. It's good for what it is. It was great then. Yeah, it was It was fantastic. Oh, uh, looking back, it's like... Uh. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. continue. It was that 18-part What Happened to Mary Jane story <laughs> that I remember the most. All those neogenic nightmares. Oh, man. And so his, his uncle, I think, lived with him. And his uncle was just like, 
<laughs> he was one of those like leftovers from like the pro-black 70s 80s movements and he was just like no like stop stop watching this show with this white superhero you know there are black superheroes you can read and we were just like oh really and so we go into his basement he has all these boxes and boxes full of comics oh wow and we like go through them and they're like black superheroes who's who comics he's collected over the years he's got like the big two he's got like a bunch of Black Panther comics and like Black Lightning and like a bunch of really important storm stories. And then he's got stuff that was coming out concurrently. Like he had from Valiant, Shadow Man. Oh, wow. And then he, was, and then there was this box that had a bunch of Milestone comics in them. Oh, wow. From the start of Milestone to like whenever we were like looking through that box like 96, 97, I think they were, I think they might have been da- like gone by then, but like every single issue in, in a bag from start to finish. And we would sit in his basement, like look through all these issues. It was, fu- it was amazing. Like I'd never seen black superheroes like this. You know, I had seen like Storm on the X-Men cartoon. I'd never really found X-Men comics like that. Like I'd never gone to a comic shop before then but like just seeing like seeing like static before the sh- the cartoon what was the weirdest thing was <laughs> the weirdest thing was reading those comics as a kid maybe like seven or eight then the static show comes out years later and sort of having this like thing in the back of my head like this is so familiar like what is this and then like years later finding random milestone comics as an adult because i always i always randomly find them in dollar bins. i'll go to like whatever local comic book shop when I'm visiting a friend and I'll look through the dollar bin and I'll see like a random blood syndicate or icon or hardware comic and I'll buy it and I'll flip through it and I'll just be like, I remember this. I remember this exact story reading it at like seven or eight years old in my friend's basement, like while his uncle like gave us juice boxes or something. (laughs) Like that's the weirdest thing. (laughs) It's like, that was just another instance later when I got into X-Men, I was going to the school it was like a mostly white school. It was sort of like really hostile situation. Like with me and the black students and a lot of the other white students, just really didn't feel welcome at that place. I want to say it was middle school. And the librarian at the middle school was this black woman. She had to be like 20, 28, 29, 30. She sort of recognized sort of what I was dealing with at the time. I think I later learned that she was like a women's studies major and like a really big comics fan. So she gave me a stack of X-Men comics that were really heavy, Storm-centered, like, issues and arcs. And so I just read them, and I was just like, holy shit, Storm is awesome. What's really funny is one of the first arcs I read was, uh, was it the Brood Saga? Oh, yeah. And in the Brood Saga, Storm, like, sacrifices herself for everyone. And I'm just like, wait, did Storm just die in the <laughs> 70s? And, like, nobody said anything? Like, what's happening? Like I found, like, but like later I knew it wasn't it wasn't the truth. I'm just picturing you throwing down this book and somewhere Chris Claremont like rubbing his hands together and being like, ha ha ha, <laughs> yes I have them, I have them in my hand. I was so angry. <laughs> <laughs> I was so angry. But yeah, like that one was interesting. The one where, <laughs> the one where she confronts Kitty when she she changes her her look into like the the punk and like the mohawk, and then like Kitty freaks out. 
and like it's the one issue where like her and Kitty are like above the mansion and she's keeping them afloat with her wind powers and then she confronts Kitty and she's just like I want you to be happy for me like this is a change I need in my life and like this is good and I need you to be happy for me and (laughs) and I, I sort of read the issues leading up to that and for years I'd never read like Kitty centric X Men stories and I and I hated Kitty Pride. I hated Kitty Pride for years until I actually like got to know who she was as a character, and I was like, "Who's this like selfish child <laughs> who like wants Storm to like be her? I don't know, mother figure or whatever? Like, go away!" Like, I hated Kitty for years <laughs> until until I actually like read more about her, and I like Kitty now, but like back then, I couldn't stand Kitty. It's a terrible first impression. <laughs> I was just like, God, who is this? <laughs> I, w- I wanted to save this one for last, so I don't get because I tell this story and I get choked up sometimes. <laughs> so my mom's, so my mom is like a big Superman fan. Like she loves Superman, and how the, and how that came about was when uh, you know the Christopher Reeve Superman movie came out. She went to a premiere in Chicago, and uh, she went with her boyfriend at the time and like a group of people. I think my aunt. I think it was like a couple, I think it was my mom and my aunt and like two of their friends. And like, I think everybody was on a date and they all go. And then like, lo and behold, Christopher Reeve is there. Wow. Yeah, just like randomly he's there and he's just like chatting it up with people. He's being really nice. And like, he goes up to my mom and her date or my mom and her boyfriend at the time. And he's, and he's just like, oh, what's your name? And then my mom was like, oh his name and then my name is Amy and, and Christopher Reeve tells my mom a story about this girl who he knew in high school whose name was Amy and he had a crush on her <laughs> and like he really liked that name and so like it was just like a it wasn't like a creepy story it was just like a really funny endearing story and like the whole night you know it was just like this long line of people and he was just talking to everybody and like cracking jokes and it made her feel really like okay like he's a good person he was asking my mom because my mom was referring to her date as her friend, and he was referring to my mom as his girlfriend. <laughs> and then Christopher Reeve was just like, yeah, Christopher Reeve was just like, okay, we're getting two conflicting stories here. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so what's the deal? <laughs> I think a little later, people were still in the lobby, and like he was helping all the people behind the booth selling like popcorn and candy and drinks to people. <laughs> he was like taking orders. <laughs> everything i think my mom asked him like what do you want people to get out of this movie and then he says people used to read superman and it would make them happy and it would make them feel good and i want people to see this movie and i want it to make them feel good and then like all of this is in my mom's head and she's just like oh this guy is really awesome so she goes she goes to in the movie all this is happening while people are like waiting to go see the movie she sits in the movie and she sort of had this idea of like Superman, like he's this dude in this blue outfit and he saves people, whatever. So she goes and she sits down and she watches the movie and, and she sees Christopher Reeve. Like she doesn't see Superman for a, like a, for a while. And so like the movie starts to set in and she starts getting into like the feeling of like, I'm watching a Superman movie. And then like she gets it, like this is Superman. Like Superman is supposed to make you feel like you're the only person. You know, he's supposed to make you feel like you're the most important person and on the planet to him at that moment. Superman is supposed to make you feel like, although bad shit happens in the world, 
there's always room to smile. There's always room to laugh. You can always be optimistic in the world, even if bad shit happens. You know, and, and sort of she's always kept that idea of Superman and Christopher Reeve with her. And so like anytime there's like a anytime there's a Superman adaptation, she like it gets super excited, but she's also just like, I mean, he looks like Superman, but he's not Christopher Reeve. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like every like I think her second favorite Superman adaptation is the Lois and Clark, The Adventures of oh, Lois yeah. and Clark, nineties, and she loves she loves Dean Cain, but she's also like He's not Christopher Reeve. <laughs> he's good, but he's no Christopher Reeve. <laughs> and so when I was a kid, we would watch these movies and my mom would say, like, I'm not a big Superman fan. I've always been like, if I read or watch anything with Superman, they better get Lois right. <laughs> Lois Lane is my <laughs> Lois Lane is my person. And so like my mom, her thing was always like, you look at the city and all these people look up at Superman and like there could be a monster crashing through the city. There could be a big ass fire taking taking out buildings, but they look up and they see Superman and they know everything is gonna be fine. Like that's the feeling she she holds inside of her heart when she sees anything with Superman. And it's like one of the most <laughs> excuse me, <laughs> it's one of the most powerful one of the most powerful things my mom's ever said <laughs> to me as far as like comics and nerd culture when i think sort of about like when i think about like how she had you know this really amazing powerful thing when she was younger with superman and how like when i was a kid i had the superman animated series and although like you know it's a really great adaptation of superman anything my draw was always lois lane i have an undying love and admiration for lois lane from that show and for my niece my niece loves supergirl I was love Supergirl. I was just waiting because I'm like, I, I gotta bring up the new Supergirl show because exactly <laughs> what your mom just said. That show is just like it's hope and goodness and it's fun and episodic and it's it's great. I love it a bit. Yeah, it's so good. Like I I love that. Like I think I was listening to uh, a previous episode of Kieran Chiag's Zero Hour, and one of his guests. I can't remember what which which guest. I want to say it was John Morris was talking about how like the feelings the person Christopher Reeve was and, and the person Melissa Benoist is, they sort of inhabit similar places in our consciousness of who like Superman and Supergirl are supposed to be. And the messages they give out to their audience are like very similar of like, like this person who embodies this character is such a good person. And they bring so much positivity and optimism into the world because they know that that them playing this character is a huge responsibility because of what they mean to so many people. And like they both sort of, in their public life, they both really um, channel the character that they play. And like, yeah, it's just, I don't know, it's such a, I don't know, I get choked up just talking about it. <laughs> it's a great thing. And yeah, they're both, I mean, you hear about, you know, living your values. And I think they both very much, re like you said, they realize the power and the importance with a capital I of that symbol. And yeah, they just so happens that they're both great people and are can be vocally supportive of good things. And like I remember just like scrolling through Twitter and seeing Melissa Benoist at the Women's March and just being like, That's that's awesome. Like, you know, you're a celebrity. You don't need to be out in public, but you are you are doing this because it's important. With a capital I. 
Yeah. She meets her fans and she has like long, really amazing conversations with these little girls about what it means to be powerful. And that's so cool. Like that's so good, you know? It's just a it's just a fantastic thing. Yeah, it's just it's so amazing. I think that's a good note to actually wrap up on. So Bilal, if people wanted to see your stuff on the internet, where would they go? You can follow me on Twitter if you want <laughs> at Bilal is wrong. So that's B-I-L-A-L is wrong. Find any of my stuff on uh, Screen Test Media Blog. There's a Facebook page for it right now. Like, stay tuned for any updates. What I got to know about your Twitter is, are you going to be watching any more Marvel movies with your dad and live tweeting it? Because that was <laughs> a blast. <laughs> you know, he hasn't he hasn't seen the Thor movies yet. Oh, okay. And I think that's going to be the next the next couple ones. <laughs> I'm so excited. That was so much fun. Oh yeah, he's uh, he's a he's a character. I watching <laughs> watch him watching Civil War, him watching the the Captain America movies, and then Civil War was some of the funniest <laughs> moments. Yeah, <laughs> it was it was pretty great. So I, I look forward to the upcoming Bilal and Dad watch the Thor. <laughs> oh man, <laughs> stay tuned. All right, Bilal, thanks so much for coming on. This has been really great. Oh yeah, yeah. Thank you for having me, Lucas. Shit, I still ain't cool, but you better make some room for me. I'm coming through with my crew at the rendezvous. Yeah, it's a party over here now. Yeah, it's a party over here now. If I knew then what I know now, I give myself a souvenir for old time's sake. Cause I got all that I need here and I'm good. Yeah, yeah. I thought I needed to. Thank you very much to Bilal Shelby for their time. For Bilal's signature cocktail, they requested something with whiskey, specifically Jameson's, and some muted citrusy flavors. I reckon I've got just the thing. So I present the Icon in a mixing glass with ice. Combine one and a half ounces of Irish whiskey, Jameson's if you've got it, one and a half ounces of limoncello, half an ounce of dry vermouth, one dash of orange bitters, and one dash of Angostura bitters. Use a bar spoon and stir rapidly until everything's combined and chilled. Straight into a cocktail glass and garnish with a twist of lemon. The use of lemoncello instead of lemon juice keeps the whiskey from being completely overwhelmed by the citrus, and the dry vermouth gives everything a nice steely tone. This drink will pick you up when you're feeling down and never let you hit the ground. Enjoy! We both got work to do. If I knew then what I know now, I give my a souvenir for old time's sake Cause I got all that I need here And I'm good
The Math of You is recorded in Leichhardt, New South Wales, Australia, and is written, hosted, and edited by yours truly, Lucas Brown. New episodes are released every Wednesday, and if you'd like to be a guest on the show, simply send an email to themathofyou at gmail.com and tell us what you'd like to talk about. You can follow the show on Twitter at themathofyou, and you can follow my wacky adventures at Lokified, L-O-K-I-F-I-E-D, on Twitter and Instagram, and Lokified82 on Snapchat. If you would like to directly support the show and you have a few dollars kicking around, you can head on over to patreon.com slash lokified and pledge as little as a dollar a month or as much as you want to get early access to episodes, physical mail, rewards, and I would really, really just appreciate it a whole bunch. If you'd like to support the show non-monetarily, you can go to iTunes in the country of your choice and leave a five-star rating. It helps us climb the charts and helps new listeners find the show. You can also leave a review and I'll read it out on the air. Won't that be nice? If you like the music I play on the show, there's a Spotify playlist for that. You can go to bit.ly slash themathofyou, with capitals at the beginning of each word, to find our Spotify playlist that I update each and every week, with all the music used on the show, including this one. It's John Williams' Superman theme, but you already knew that. I could have used so many songs for this bit. I could have used Crash Test Dummies, or Five for Fighting, or Our Lady Peace, or Big Pink, but come on. Listen to how hopeful that is. I update the playlist every Wednesday as soon as the show is live, so make sure you subscribe to get that new music in your ears. Also, Mia Culpa, I know I promised you guys a bonus episode with me talking to Alex Watts, and that's still on the way. I just plumb forgot until this afternoon. You should see it in the feed this week. Next week, I'll be talking to Melissa Bright about forbidden media and paths to the devil. That makes it sound really serious and ominous. Join me, won't you? I've been getting ready because it's actually warm here, but I've been getting ready to barbecue. Oh, and nice. with my dad, with my dad and I like barbecuing, is, it's such a huge thing. I feel like when it gets to like 75 degrees, like we like feel it in our bones. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, a, it's like, it's almost biological at this point. And we just get ready and we can like feel, you know, when you go places and you can smell people barbecuing and yep. you know what they're cooking. We can like tell what people are cooking and can tell what type of barbecue sauce they're using. <laughs> Like, like you're there and it's like uh, in Bambi when man enters the forests and it's like yeah. all the little rabbits like pop their heads up and one's, one of the front yeah. sniffs and goes yeah it's Kansas City <laughs> yeah, our previous neighbors because the way our house is there's like our house is up the street and there's a long driveway at the side and then there's another house behind us and we share the same driveway and that neighbor used to run a construction company and we got a phone call from the real estate agent one day saying oh sam in the other house has said that he's got a delivery coming and it's going to be some like some a bag of cedar chips and they might leave it because they couldn't get into where he was uh, they might just leave it in the parking spot is that okay and we're like yeah sure no problem and uh we'll just run it back when we get home so i get home and there is a pile of cedar chips as big as a car <laughs> that someone has just clearly like backed a truck in and just like dumped it out. Oh gosh. <laughs> and we we're looking and it's like, cause my girlfriend's car was there and it's like a little hatchback mm -hmm. and the pile of cedar chips was taller than the car. Oh, wow. Wow. <laughs> and he got home and he just went, Oh, this is way more than I expected. I can't do anything with this. And so he left it there. Oh no. And then he moved out. So it's like, 
uh, we've just had this pile of cedar chips over like, you know, a rainy, rainy summer. And so it's just like composted. So so in last week, I decided I was going to take it upon myself because we've got, because the parking space is about a three inch drop from the edge of the driveway. So it's that ka-chunk as you pull the car in. Yeah. And I'm worried we're just going to rip the muffler off one of these days. <laughs> and so I thought, okay, we've got a pile of bricks left from a previous tenant. I'm going to make, like, just like line the bricks up and I'm going to get some of the cedar chips in between and around to soften it. I'm going to make a parking spot. Mm-hmm. And I did, except for I underestimated how much bending and leaning would be involved. And the next day I went to get up and my legs just sort of screamed at me. Oh, wow. (laughs) (laughs) It's like all the hamstrings and stuff is just like, you don't normally do this. (laughs) Just what what are you doing? What are you doing to us? (laughs) (laughs) And what's the worst thing is that I didn't even use up like not even half of the cedar chips that were there. So we still have a now slightly smaller pile. It was, but it's still there. It was a slightly smaller cars, <laughs> car size pile. Exactly. So it's like you know, it's a mini rather than a hatchback. Yeah. <laughs> That's the standard measurement of cedar chips, right? Yeah. One mini of cedar chips. Yeah. 